0: Good morning, good morning. It's really good to be here with you guys today. Well, it's the new year. Growing up on the East Coast, we'd always count down to the ball drop in Times Square. Since having kids, we've rarely made it to midnight. (laughs) But this year, we did count down to the ball drop at 9 PM our time, which was so much friendlier for bedtimes. That was great. You know, many of us have traditions for the new year. Maybe you like to pick a word for the year. Maybe you like to make resolutions. Maybe you're one of the enlightened people who don't make resolutions because you know half of them don't last past one month. (laughs) Chinese New Year is coming up later this month when I look forward to eating sticky rice desserts like niangao, sticky rice cakes, and tangyuan, those sticky rice ball things. Now we have these traditions because regardless of what is driving schedules in our individual lives, the new year is a time when we can collectively mark a transitional moment. It's a universal prompt for us to look back and look forward. And so we're gonna start a series entitled All Things New where we're going to study one of the most transitional books in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua. So Joshua tells the story of how the Israelites come to possess the promised land. But before they do that, right after they've left the wilderness, but before they fight their first battle, we have this space recorded in a few chapters at the beginning of the book, where they're in between the old and the new. And in this space, there are four things that happen, the crossing, the cairn, the covenant, and the commander. Over the next four weeks, we'll look at each of these events and see what they have to show us about how to look back on the old or look forward to the new. Today we'll serve as an introduction to the series. We'll take a look at the first nine verses in Joshua to get some context about who Joshua is and what's going on for the Israelites. As we'll do so, we'll see that we'll see what God has to show us about something. We'll see what God has to show us about facing new things without fear, specifically why we should face new things without fear and how we can do it, why and how. Okay, so let's begin by reading Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people. So in our English Bibles, the first word here is after, but in the original Hebrew text, the first word is and. This verse links directly to the end of the book before it, the book of Deuteronomy, because something really big happens there. Moses dies. Now you have to understand Moses was the chief human character of the previous four books of the Bible. He's the only leader these people and their parents have ever known. And at the end of Deuteronomy, After giving speeches, songs, and blessings, Moses dies at the top of this mountain, his strength not gone, his eyes not dimmed. And as an eye doctor, that's always the point where I'm like, what, no cataracts at 120 years old? That's really impressive. So the people grieve him for 30 days. You know, they say, oh, there's never been anyone like him. And Joshua chapter 1, now you got this new guy Joshua, who has to be reintroduced, you know, the son of Nun, in case you forgot who he was. Joshua had tough shoes to fill. How many of us remember the person who came after someone famous, like the prime minister after Winston Churchill or the president after Abraham Lincoln? Now, Joshua had the resume. We first meet him as the warrior who led the Israelites to victory in the first war they fought after leaving Egypt. We later meet him as Moses' assistant, who went with him to the top of Mount Sinai to meet God. Joshua was one of the 12 spies sent into the Promised Land and one of the few who brought back a good report. He's got a good resume, but still, he hasn't met God in a burning bush, part of the Red Sea, made the sky dark. He's no Moses. We'll see in the next few weeks that God is going to give Joshua some of those same experiences. But for now, he's just the new guy, and he's beginning with an impossible mission. To understand this, here's a map. If you look at the red circles, down, into your, there, down to your left, there's Egypt, which is where the Israelites began. Up into to your right, there's Canaan, that's the promised land. So the most direct route from Egypt to Canaan approaches Canaan from the south, where that blue star is. And that's where Moses led them, but the Israelites got afraid and refused to enter. Later on, they changed their minds and tried to enter again from the south, but are defeated by the Canaanites there. The Israelites then go on to wander the wilderness for 40 years, during which time that entire generation died, with the exception of Joshua and a few others. The new generation then ends up on the east side of Canaan, where the green star is, on the other side of the Jordan River, which is that thin blue line going up from the Dead Sea. So it's at this green star, at this obviously indirect and geographically unstrategic point, that Moses lands the people and hands the reins over. So now, 40 years and several failed attempts later, Joshua is leading Gen W, the wilderness generation, numbering, yeah, numbering probably around a million people at that point, on a mission to finally do what their parents failed to do, and he's starting from the opposite side of an uncrossable river. On the other side of that river are fortified cities with large populations, and Gen W has limited combat experience. The odds are not good all things new. Joshua was a new leader, guiding a new generation to a new place, on a new mission, and no aspect of that was easy. This was not like a nice kind of new. This was facing a formidable future while carrying a history of failure. Can you imagine what Joshua must have been feeling? What God actually tells us, he says to Joshua at the end of our passage, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Joshua was frightened. He felt scared. And that word dismayed literally means broken apart, scared to pieces. Three times in these nine verses, God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. Another way of saying, he knows Joshua was feeling the opposite of that, fearful and weak, maybe not Physically weak, per se, but weak in resolve. Afraid to the point of not wanting to go on. Do you ever feel that way? I'm one of those people that always drives the same route, regardless of time of day traffic, because I'd rather stick with something I know than be stressed out trying something new. And that's just a small thing. The more unknown something is, the greater the risk. The higher stakes the outcome, the more people are watching, the easier it is to get paralyzed with fear or anxiety. And sometimes for me, that's almost worse than going through whatever's going to happen is my dread about it. And you know, it's almost a relief that God is calling that out here that someone with as sterling a resume as Joshua is feeling that way, and that God sees how he feels because sometimes I have a hard time admitting it to myself or others. Is there something you're scared about or dreading this year? Is there some difficult or unknown situation you're facing? God's words to Joshua are words to us too. Don't be frightened or dismayed. Why? You can be strong and courageous, but how? Why and how? That's what we're going to look at for the rest of our time. First, why? Let's read on in Joshua chapter 1, picking up in verse 2. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Only be strong and very courageous. Why don't we have to be afraid? I think the answer most of us want to hear is, because it's going to turn out okay. And in a way, God does say that here. You shall cause this people to inherit the land. It's going to be mission success, Joshua. But here's the thing. We tend to think that it's up to us to make sure that happens. But that's precisely the opposite of the main point God is making here. If you were to go back and highlight the main action words in the text, there's all of it, you'd see something like this. So the actions of God are in red, those of Joshua in blue, and what stands out over and over again is that God is the main subject of all these action words. I am giving, I have given, I will be, I soar. And it is only because of that that Joshua can have the courage to go over. You see, the reason why Joshua can be strong and courageous, the reason why it's going to turn out okay in the end is not because of Joshua. It's because of God. Specifically, it's because of two things about God, which he reveals to Joshua here. First, God keeps his promises this whole section contains words that would have been very familiar to Joshua because they were the same words spoken to Moses in Deuteronomy. Every place of the sole of your foot will tread, your territory will go from here to here, no man shall stand before you. Like all those phrases are almost verbatim what God had said before. And the promise of the land stretches back not only to Moses, but all the way to Abraham. But God is not only going into the past, he's also going into the future because the boundary lines he lists here, there's a visual of it coming up, these boundaries aren't going to be achieved until centuries later under Kings David and Solomon. Joshua would not see this during his lifetime. See, God is reminding Joshua of his promises in a way that's like taking him up into an airplane and giving him a cruising altitude view. You know, when you go onto a plane and it's window or aisle seat, I was always a window seat person growing up because I love the view. When you're up there, you can look at the clouds from above, the mountains look like wrinkles, the farmland looks like patchwork, The reality is, it's the same landscape that we walk on, right? But it looks completely different because of one variable perspective. Dread and fear tends to shrink our perspective. And here, God is giving Joshua a big picture view of his promises to remind him that God is so much bigger than this moment he finds himself in. God is so much more in control than Joshua knows. God's promises go further back than Joshua himself can remember and stretch farther forward than Joshua himself can see. But God knows and God sees and God will keep his promises. He keeps his promises on a scale that few of us can even really comprehend. Secondly, God will be with us. He says over and over here, I will be with you. I will not leave you. It doesn't matter what new place you go, Joshua. I will be there. The fact is most of us would say that we believe God is everywhere all the time, but knowing that in a cerebral way and having a conscious faith in that, in a way that changes how you live, those are two different things. What does it look like when someone's presence is so significant to you, so real to you, that it takes away your fear? I've always been fascinated with how visually impaired athletes run marathons. You can imagine if you couldn't see how difficult it would be to simply get from one side of the room to the other, much less run more than 26 miles across all kinds of terrain. But how blind runners do it is they run with a sighted guide who runs next to them. They each hold two ends of a short piece of rope. The guide that uses the guide uses that rope, that connection, to nudge the blind runner in different directions. And as they run, the guide calls out turns, potholes, obstacles as they go along. The blind runner is working hard, but ultimately, their ability to run their fastest, their ability to complete the race, to go on mile after mile, is because of the presence of the person next to them, because of their trust in that person's ability to see what they cannot, to keep pace and not leave them until the race is done. That's the kind of trust we can have in God. God sees what we cannot God is more than able to work in and through us along the way, and he promises never to leave us. We don't have to be afraid because of God's promises and God's presence. That's the why. What about the how? I don't know about you, but if I were Joshua at that moment, I would appreciate some kind of like action plan for success. And now some insider tips on the enemy's weak points. How many flanks should I split my army up into, And so on. And those are the kind of things we want to know for our new year too, right? Like, hey, this year, you're going to want to sign up for these summer camps. I'm not kidding. Parents start planning camps in January around here. You're going to want to get in touch with this guy at work, or maybe you'll end up breaking up with that guy, so don't waste your time. I mean, what if I told you that God does tell Joshua how to have success? Success is actually not a word that appears all that often in the Bible, but here it is. Let's finish our passage picking up in verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The key to success is meditating on the law of God, the Bible. Maybe not what we'd expect, but if our ability to be strong and courageous rests not so much on who we are as who God is, then it makes sense that the key to success is to know that God And that's not just going to happen automatically. That comes by meditating on his word. Interestingly, if you go through the Bible, you won't see a lot of commands to read the Bible. What we're told is to meditate on it. What does it mean to meditate? Our modern-day idea of meditation tends to involve emptying the mind and concentrating on nothing. That's not really the kind of meditation the Old Testament talks about. And to help illustrate this, here's a photo of our dog, <laughs> now you might be asking, okay Esther, is this just a shameless ploy to, ske- <laughs> to score a few points with the audience? Maybe this is our pathologically friendly retriever. And besides cuddles, she is motivated by one thing in life as illustrated by this t-shirt. Every snack you make, every meal you bake, every bite you take, I'll be watching you. Yes, really hard not to sing that. Our dog is very food-motivated, so when she gets a big bone, she gives it her entire attention, for she she'll walk around the room a few times, holding it in her mouth and looking very pleased with herself. Then she'll settle into a corner and gnaw it over and over from every possible angle. Sometimes she'll hide it somewhere and go back to it the next day. And one of the only times she ever growls is when she's working over a bone or tree. So that Hebrew word that we just read for meditate literally means growl. It's used elsewhere to describe the way a lion growls over its prey, and Eugene Peterson likens it to how a dog growls over a bone. You see, meditating in the Old Testament is not about emptying your mind, but filling it with the Bible. Meditation is dog with a bone reading, chewing and breaking it down, savoring it and coming back to it with unhurried delight, wrestling with it. Letting it get inside you, absorbing it, living out from it. Meditation is reading words in order to be formed by them. And this process of formation is one that happens on a daily basis. You shall meditate on it day and night. I've often wondered about this. Like, instead of reading the Bible every day, why can't I read the same amount once in a while? It's kind of like eating, I suppose. Like, why do we have to eat every day? Why can't we just last off a weekly bolus? Like, given how much time we spend food prepping for our family, like, that would be a lot more efficient. But that's not how our bodies are formed. We need to eat every day because we move every day and grow or not every day because life is never stagnant. And that's the same reason we need to meditate on the Bible day and night, because the process of spiritual formation happens daily, whether we're aware of it or not. I remember Dean used to say, we might not remember what we had for breakfast that morning, but it's what sustains us when we need it. And it's the same way with reading the Bible. We might not remember what we read that day, but it all becomes fuel in the tank that we need as we move through our lives. Do you have a way of meditating on the Bible regularly? If not, are you willing to consider starting that practice this year? As part of this series, we'll be starting two different spiritual practices. You'll hear about the second one next week. But the first practice we'll be doing is reading through the New Testament over 26 weeks or just over six months. We'll be reading two chapters of the New Testament every day, five days a week. That's the first great thing about this reading plan. You get the weekends off. You can use that time to catch up or to go deeper to something you read. Second great thing, it's only two chapters a day, either read or listened to, which is doable enough to fit into most of our schedules, yet involves a long enough commitment to build a habit. One last great thing, it's something we get to do together. You know, when God says to meditate on the Bible, all the yous in that part of the passage are plural. He's talking to all of us together as a church. This is a chance to all be reading together, and we'll have Zoom meetings at various intervals to check in and build community. So that's our six-month New Testament Bible reading plan to encourage us to meditate on the word daily and together. More info on how to join will be coming up in the next few weeks. Today, we've seen God reveal himself as someone who sees and names our fear, who gives us his promises and his presence, and who leads us as we meditate on and follow his word. There's one interesting thing about Joshua I haven't mentioned yet, and that's the fact that he was not born Joshua. He was born Hosea. Hoshea means he has saved. The source of that salvation is not specified. Right before Hoshea is about to enter the promised land as a spy, Moses renames him by combining his name with the name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh and Hoshea make Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. I wonder if Joshua was thinking about that moment when he stood at the brink of the promised land again 40 years later. The Lord saves. That ends up being true. In what has to be one of the best epilogues to a story ever, the end of the book of Joshua says this. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well-advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel and said to them, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. Not one word has failed. Many years later, God continues to keep his promises by sending another Joshua. The Hebrew name Joshua, when translated into New Testament Greek, is Jesus. In Greek, Jesus means the Lord saves. Jesus, who was strong and courageous for us, even unto death, so that we might truly be with God forever. Hosea to Joshua to Jesus. We're going to transition now to a time of communion. If you want to find and prime your communion pods, I primed mine before coming up, It's kind of cool that we get to take communion around New Year's because communion itself is a transitional event, right? It links our present to the past and to the future. We take communion to remember the past. We remember the Passover meal where blood saved God's people from death. We remember the last supper eaten the night before Jesus gave his life to save us. We take communion to proclaim that death until Jesus comes. So we look forward to his coming in the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 21, Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. The vision we see there is not Joshua, but Jesus leading not only the Israelites but all who believe in him into not a physical Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth. Communion is the past and the future meeting in our transitional present. It's our remembering and proclaiming that God has and is and will be making all things new through the new Joshua, Jesus Christ. Amen.